Radio. My Faith, the Church and Politics. An interview with Professor John Holday. I firstly just wanted to ask you um, just about, as a Catholic, how has your faith and the church influenced you firstly as a person, but also in your work in philosophy? Um, well, my background and upbringing um, were um, interesting, I might be the best way of putting it. Uh, my grandfather was a very uh, serious and austere Calvinist and uh, was very uh, antipathetic to Roman Catholicism. Um, and uh, when my grandmother died, he came to live with us for, at a certain point. And, um, the, uh, and, and so I was exposed to his views on the Roman Catholic Church. I was myself at the same time, however, being educated by the Jesuits. Um, my father at that point was not a Roman Catholic, I think, I can't remember exactly, but, uh, but he converted to Roman Catholicism, uh, but my mother was a Roman Catholic. And I suppose my father must have converted to Roman Catholicism by that point. But the point was that I was being brought up in a household in which both Roman Catholicism and um, uh, Calvinism really were sort of present uh, influences. And, um, and, I, and I'm grateful for that, actually, because I think it, it gave me a sort of sharpened sense of some of the differences. And, and the fact that um, what some people sort of bemoan... Uh, as you know, hostility between different Christian groups. I think often one should see it in rather different terms as an expression of serious commitment. It's precisely because they take matters seriously that they think that uh, error is um, to be rooted out, and particularly because in the spiritual sphere, both parties, I think, would think that error can lead to eternal death. So it's not a trivial matter. So, in a way, I grew up with that sense of the importance of religion, not the doerness or darkness or severity of it, but just the idea that it was something to take seriously. So, I suppose from that point of view, um, uh, from an early stage and with family example and so on, I had reason to think seriously about religion. And um, I have to say from, I mean, I don't know exactly from when, but uh, I've never really um, suffered religious doubts uh, I mean, obviously, one thinks about different things from time to time, and you know, like the tides and seas and things come and go, and so on. But um, I believed that it was true, um, and I was grateful to have received it, as it were. And um, I suppose that the rest of my life has been a working out of different aspects of life and different aspects of human experience and human reflection uh, from within a, a sort of, well, certainly Christian consciousness but uh, one that is a sort of sharpened Catholic one, sharpened by having to sort of think that in the face of opposition from, for example, um, uh, Calvinism on the one hand, and then, of course, uh, later in life, uh, agnosticism and atheism and so on. Um, so, I, and uh, I should perhaps just add at this point that uh, though I was educated by the Jesuits, and they were quite, a, I suppose, an influence in introducing to me to philosophy, the thing that I actually wanted to study when I left school was fine art. And there um, <laughs> was some resistance uh, on the part of the Jesuits, but there was no resistance whatsoever on the part of my family. In fact, they were very encouraging to my parents. So um, I actually went off and did five years of art study, uh, undergraduate and postgraduate. And, um, and then returned to philosophy, in a sense, and, and uh, you know, to, properly speaking, to the study of philosophy at university level. So, uh, both in the area of art, which I have a, an ongoing and quite serious interest, and through the medium of philosophy, 
I've seen both of these as supplementing, raising questions for, but being a vehicle for the exploration of religious belief. Hmm. I guess just on that that movement in ph- to philosophy there, I guess I, I have to ask, what I guess was the attraction for you of St. Thomas Aquinas, given that you, um, that you study him, you um, coined the term analytical Thomist. Um, I guess what is what was the attraction for you um, of St. Thomas Aquinas and his thought? Well, uh, my education in philosophy was a purely secular education. Uh, I, I didn't study Catholic philosophy. I certainly I didn't study in a Catholic institution, and I didn't study Catholic philosophy or Catholic theology at university I'm talking about now. I would have been introduced, obviously, to Catholic theology uh, at school, at high school, um, through the Jesuits, and because of the intellectual interest of my family into theological ideas. But... Um, Aquinas I came to later, and, and somewhat indirectly. Um, I mean, Aquinas was not taught, not only was, you know, it was Catholic thought not taught as, as part of my philosophical studies, but that um, the, the thought of the Middle Ages generally, and, and this remains the case in universities across the English-speaking world, uh, for the most part is not taught. I mean, if you're doing a degree in philosophy, you leap from the ancient world to the modern world. Um, these days it's slightly improved, but, but even so it's extensively ignored. Um, but when I was studying, um, there was really no opportunity to study medieval philosophy. It certainly wasn't available at London University where I was a student. And probably was only in a couple of, I mean, there was a lecturer at Oxford and there was somebody else, I'm not quite sure, maybe at Cambridge. Um, but really there was no presence of medieval philosophy. And so um, when people, if people referred to anything to do with the Middle Ages, um, it would be, well, not a very informed uh, remark, but it would be a rather brief and dismissive one. And so I, that sort of was enough to, uh, counter-suggestibility, that was enough to make me think it might be worth looking at. If they dismissed it, I might have looked at it. But I, I didn't have access to much in the way of to materials, and so I used to take myself off to the Catholic Central Library in London, which no longer exists, I have to say, and uh, made my way down into the basement and, and started to sort of get out books and articles and, and through really through that I, I then proceeded to read Aquinas himself but I think in many ways that was a good way to have done it because I didn't bring I didn't come to it through um, uh, receiving it through teaching that you know assumed its correctness or assumed that you would already be interested I had to sort of work my way into Aquinas without much help um, and uh, I mean I, I don't uh, complain in the slightest about that. In fact, on the contrary, I think it's been a, a benefit. In terms of, I guess, the church's engagement with the world, um, it's no secret that, particularly in the English-speaking world, that um, I guess our most public discourse exists within a secular sphere. Uh, and I guess um, there is a bit of a concern that I've seen that the church is being, um, I guess, relegated, uh, perhaps through the fault of, of those who speak for the church, to somewhat of a lobby group. Um, within political discussion. Um, Where do you think the church should sit uh, in terms of discussion of politics, given that Australia has an election, a federal election coming up, uh, and discussion about the direction of civilisation? Yeah, well, I think that uh, the position of uh, religion, but let's say um, specifically Christianity, and then in a moment we'll proceed to Roman Catholicism, but let's just say Christianity for the moment in the English-speaking world is differentiated really between the United States, Australia and part of Britain, 
uh, from England. In England, because of the establishment of the Church of England, it was the state church, um, it automatically did have a voice in most matters. So if we take something like the 1944 Education Act, this was designed jointly, as it were, by the, the Minister for Education, uh, Butler, and the then uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple. So uh, as late as 19, you know, as, as the period of 1944, the ongoing period of the Second World War, the Church of England was very much in there and, and playing a role in shaping, in this case, education. Now, um, in Scotland, things were slightly different because the Church of Scotland was not as an established church. It had been in the 19th century, but by the 20th century it was not. Um, and, and so its position was slightly different, but nonetheless it was the kind of the national church. And in those, both of those cases, I think that that has come with a great cost because as the state, as it were, has moved on, so it's tended to, its dismissal of, say, religious ideas has tended to be very much strike at those two churches. Now, I think it was an advantage of the Roman Catholic Church in Great Britain um, and indeed of all churches in the United States because of no establishment um, that they were somewhat outsider voices and, and Extent, of course, that's true also here in Australia. So I think that Catholics had to, as it were, work their way into the debate, and I think that was a good thing. I think, in a way, they've become sort of too much like established churches. They acquired some of the characteristic and features of part of a sort of social establishment, a fe- you know, a part of the fabric of society. And while, in a way, that was desirable, and well, at any rate, it was understandable that people would desire it, um, not least because it meant that they the laity could take their part within society. They were no longer thought of as a kind of outsider immigrant class. So I think in many ways that was made life people's lives a lot easier. But in the process, I think that the churches, um, the Roman Catholic Church, somewhat lost its critical voice. It simply became part of, you know, the background hum of, of general establishment. Not in the technical sense, but I mean just of society, as it were. And now the society has moved on; it's left it pretty much high and dry. So what you find is the church trying to, as well, speak the language of the world, or at any rate, trying to speak its own language in a style that's meant to make it receptive to the ears of the world, which often comes to pretty much the same thing. Um, and I think that, that in the process, um, it, it has lost its flavour and its distinctness. So, you know, what does one to do against that background? Well, I don't think it's... Uh, there's nothing to be said for standing in a street, street corner screaming at people as they go by. Um, and and uh, nor, I think, are, are sort of, you know, excessive displays of piety likely to sort of win hearts and minds. But I do think that so far as the sort of range of issues a society is concerned with, including the place of religion itself... I think that in the Catholic tradition there's a great deal that can be drawn upon to contribute to that. But I think that um, it has to begin from a position not of denunciation, nor of ingratiation, neither, as it were, dismissing the world, nor pleading to be allowed in, you know, uh, through the back door a little bit, but one thing or another, but rather just to sort of stand confidently, but not assertively, um, trying to set out its own ways of thinking about these things. And my own experience, for what it's worth, has been that um, that it, it meets with um, a degree of interest. In fact, I would say the as our English-speaking societies become further secularised and further removed from religion, in a way religion, um, or the, the content of the religious message, 
can actually have a certain revived freshness to it because it's unfamiliar. Now, of course, people are familiar or think they're familiar with a certain kind of religious voice. And so I think it's important not really to speak in that register uh, because that's just the sort of thing that they think of as, as, you know, as being rejected. But really uh, to sort of work religious ideas in, not, I think, um, surreptitiously or deceitfully or, or with a, a tricking sort of way, but rather to say, you know, these have these contribute to the understanding of the human condition. You've commented before um, about this, uh, the way that, that people argue today can often yeah. be, um, rather than, as you've described it, uh, reasonable, I believe, reasonable disagreement, that there's this sense of that people will say, I'm offended by yeah. that, that there's very much a, a notion of feeling in there. Um, I guess I want to take that a little bit further, and I guess in my own experience in observing debates, particularly such as the marriage debate, um, that there's a sense of hostility um, on one hand, I guess, on to, to use the slightly uh, incorrect terms of left and right, then on the one hand, you have this sense of that I am harmed by your comments um, and this this general sense of hostility um, there. And then on the other hand, on, on the right, you could say the rise of Donald Trump and I guess his brashness. Um, I just guess just a certain, certain comments from you um, on the rise of that kind of hostility, that brashness, that... Um, I guess not that that reason disagreement, but I guess people putting their full emotions into things uh, in public debate. Well, I think this um, it's interesting you end up with Donald Trump, unsurprisingly, of course, given the current state of American politics. But uh, Trump is very much a phenomenon of um, the 20th century media and, of course, its projection and continuation into the 21st century. But I think a lot of this has its roots in political debate and political rhetoric and contest and competition. Um, Particularly in the context of the United States, whoever wins takes it all. So, for example, if if your person becomes president uh, of your party, you get the presidency. Along the way they get, or, or, or in getting that, they also get the possibility, for example, of appointing Supreme Court justices. And in do, I mean, assuming that vacancies fall within the period of a, a term of office. But um, the, what that means is that there's the possibility of actually shaping society through the way the American Constitution is interpreted by the Supreme Court. And so there's a great deal at stake. And of course, you get to make a whole series of other appointments. But um, I think that the politicization of culture in general has taken the form of sort of importing into general discussion, or you might even say pretty much any discussion, something of the combat and contest and winner-takes-all sort of conception that characterises the electoral period. And, of course, in the United States, because um, there are elections for some part of of, um, the House every two years, uh, that really means is that they're continuously <laughs> in, a, in a state of electioneering. And then add to that the development of um, seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day news coverage and, of course, all the blogging activity and one thing and another. The whole thing is just a frenzy. I mean, you know, if, if, if somebody had woken up, you know, having gone to sleep in the 1960s even and somehow got access to what's, you know, coming through our screens, I think they'd be astonished to discover... Um, well, just how much of it there is, how vitriolic it is, how unpleasant it is, how angry it is, and so on. And I think that's kind of um, 
become the norm, really. Uh, now, you know, Trump, I don't myself see Trump as a, as a, as a um, really a manifestation of the right, particularly. I think he's a, well, he's not a new phenomenon in political life, but it's one we haven't seen for a while. And that's just he's a brute populist. Um, he, he has, he advances the usual sort of agenda of populist politicians, isolationism, in this case, America first, but if he was an Australian populist, he'd be saying Australia first. Um, uh, playing on the sense of disaffection, discontent, ill treatment of people, you know, there's, a, there's a, always trying to suggest there's people out there that want to do you harm and we're not going to let that happen and this kind of thing. Um, that is, uh, and of course, you see that to some extent uh, on the left with Bernie Sanders. It's just a different set of targets, a different set of threats. Now, I think what's happened is that this whole tone has characterized uh, public debate. And of course, in the, that, if you see public discussion as a contest, a combat and a contest, and there has to be a winner, then pretty much you'll use any trick in the book. And one kind of trick is to claim to be offended, to be hurt. You know, so if you're not willing to argue, if, if you can't counter it with a good reason, you can't always say, you know, I find that really offensive. And of course, that comes in the background of the whole cultivation of a victim consciousness. You know, that, which again, of course, is, is tied into the sense of, you know, there's somebody out to get me, or there was somebody who out to get me, or there's somebody that's done me harm. It's, it, it also goes with the compensation culture, which, of course, again, is, has its roots really in the United States. The whole idea of litigation, you know, somebody does something, I can sue them and I can get something for it. Well, here, in the case of context of public debate, somebody says something, it offends me, I can get me ground by claiming compensation in the argument. So I think it's all part of that. Mm. Do you think in all of this um, that St Thomas Aquinas can contribute something in terms of perhaps his political philosophy or just his philosophy in general? Yes, I think so. I mean, the, the thing about Aquinas is that, uh, one of the interesting things about Aquinas is that he is himself trying to bridge, not the first to seek to do this, but trying to bridge two traditions, a religious tradition, that obviously was represented by Christianity, and particular in his period, the form of developed Christian thought is kind of Augustinian, it draws from Augustine, um, and uh, the pagan philosophers, the philosophers of the ancient world who had no religious beliefs in the modern sense, and um, he's trying to show that, uh, that, that, that there's a reasonable reconciliation here. That uh, I suppose his view would be that there's nothing in the best of the ancients that contradicts anything in Christianity. Though it may well be that the ancients have to be supplemented in order to show how Christianity can be accommodated within that broader philosophical scheme. Well, I think that's a good that's a good um, model, really. Um, Certainly, if one thinks there can't be two kinds of truth, there's only one sort of truth, then that would give one encouragement to suppose that um, the, the religious insights can be fitted into the space in which rational, secular, non-presumptively religious, and ones that don't presume religious beliefs, are operating as well. And I think that when we look at, say, Aquinas' writings... Um, on law, but in general on principles of governance, um, on morality and so on. He casts them in a form that, of course, he has in view man's transcendent destiny, and so he's going to give us, or the second half of the story is going to be a religious one. But the first half of the story is one that could be presented to anybody at any time. So yes, I think so. I think he's a very... Um, though he was not himself involved in political life or anything of that sort, I think his writings um, 
are an example, and he was alert to uh, the challenges that were facing his own day. Professor John Haldane, thank you very much for joining me. Um, and you won't be here for, for very much longer, will you? Uh, well, I hope I might remain on the surface of the earth for a little longer, but, I, 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 but uh, this bit of the earth I will be departing from uh, at the end of May. But it's been very enjoyable, and uh, thank you for this. And um, uh, thank you to all of those who've been attending lectures that I've been giving or other occasions. I've met many uh, good Catholics, good Christians, and good others during this period. It's been very enjoyable. So thank you. That was an interview with Professor John Haldane entitled My Faith, the Church and Politics. Professor John Haldane has been a visiting professor at the University of Notre Dame, Australia. And for more interviews, talks and shows, visit cradio.org.au.